This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. I mean, bonjour. Um, I decided I'm kind of fidgety, so I'm going to stand up. So I just I wanted to thank Midnight Sun. Um, I don't know. They found me on Twitter and approached me last fall about publishing an excerpt of the book in their magazine, and that's like the first excerpt that got published was in Midnight Sun, and it's a beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful excerpt about becoming kin, about claiming our relatives, about about joining with us without becoming us. And I tagged Dan Levy in it five times until he eventually retweeted it. So <laughs> I have not been successful in getting um, Ryan Reynolds to retweet anything. But if you have an in, please let me know. Um, I'm told that I'm supposed to look for influencers, and they were the only two I could think of. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to begin this morning just by talking a little bit about what happened, what's happening right now at the James Smith Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. Um, there was an explosion of violence, uh, stabbings and knife attacks. Uh, not a lot is known. Last time I checked online, um, the suspects were still at large somewhere. and. Um, it's very frightening. I, I have friends who are connected with that community and are, talk, are, are, are afraid. In part, this is colonial violence turned inwards. And also they're afraid of the vigilante violence that is surfacing on social media. People um, are making posts about thinking that they've seen the suspects here or there and want to take action to protect their white community. And this is, of course, the province where Gerald Stanley was acquitted of murdering Colton Bushy. So um, I just want to take a moment and acknowledge that as we think about what it means to unforget the past and reimagine the future. We have talked a lot in this conference about worlds ending and worlds beginning and world building. And that has just been so energizing for me because smashing things is fun. I had a good conversation with Kelly Hayes earlier this weekend about how much fun it is to smash. But we need to build. We need to build. We need to have a reason that we keep doing this. So I'm just going to start by reading a portion, uh, you know, a little section of the book that um, kind of connects with rural Saskatchewan. Somehow I made it through high school and college without reading John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. The book is about the migration of the Okies, poor tenant farmers who are mostly, but not always, from Oklahoma. During the Great Depression, they followed Route 66 across the southern United States into California, where there were supposed to be jobs. In this passage, the squatting men are tenant farmers who have been told that they need to move out. 
The owners want the land, first to exhaust with cotton, and then to sell to Easterners who will build houses on it. This passage in which the bankers and the tenant farmers argue over the land felt so familiar. Steinbeck didn't use, oh sorry, yeah, he doesn't use quotation marks. I'm, this is I'm just explaining why I'm using italics in the book. You'll have to get off the land. The plows will go through the dooryard. And now the squatting man stood up angrily. Grandpa took up the land, and he had to kill the Indians and drive them away. And Pa was born here, and he killed the and he killed the weeds and the snakes. Then a bad year came, and he had to borrow a little money. And we were born here, there in the door, our children born here. And Pa had to borrow money. The bank owned the land then, but we stayed, and we got a little bit of what we raised. We know that, all that. It's not us. It's the bank. A bank isn't like a man, or an owner with 50,000 acres. He isn't like a man either. That's the monster. Sure, cried the tenant men, but it's our land. We measured it and broke it up. We were born on it. We got killed on it, died on it. Even if it's no good, it's still ours. That's what makes it ours. Being born on it, working on it, dying on it, that makes ownership. Not a paper with numbers on it. We're sorry, it's not us. It's the monster. When I read this passage, I thought about how Steinbeck described relationship to land. These tenant farmers who felt the connection, a connection that came through working on it, being born on it, dying on it, and for it. Grandpa killed Indians, Pa killed weeds and snakes. They believed the land was theirs because like the earliest settlers, they worked it and drew sustenance from it. And just like the earliest settlers, they killed Indians in order to get it. In this moving and insightful novel about these tenant farmers, Steinbeck captures the promises America makes and never intends to keep. The promise of land in Oklahoma, the promise of jobs in California. But he does it by banishing indigenous people and replacing us with the Jodes and others like them. We used to be there, but in Steinbeck's world, we aren't anymore. Our presence is limited to an obstacle grandpa removed. But surely the Osage and Apache ancestors once squatted while colonizers told them they had to move. Surely Cherokee ancestors insisted it was their land. Their children were born on it. They got killed on it and died on it. That's what made it theirs. Relationship, not a paper with numbers on it. The Grapes of Wrath begins in Salisaw, Oklahoma. Oklahoma had been part of that vast geography into which the U.S. government deposited all the Indians it didn't want living east of the Mississippi. These plains knew the Cherokee and Choctaw. They had longer memories of the Osseti Sapowin, also called the Great Sioux Nation. Before that, this land knew the Wichita and the Caddo people, whose presence goes back at least 2,000 years through the mound builders. It knew the Osage. In the indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, Paulette Steves tells us an Osage story, a fantastical story about giant beasts that had been dismissed as legend until archaeologists unearthed mammoth bones exactly where the Osage said they would be. When I say that the land is my ancestor, that is a scientific statement. Dr. Keola Fox, a Kanaka Maoli anthropologist, a genomic researcher, made that remark at an event in 2020, I think. The land itself and the condition of that land, like altitude and climate, impact our genome just as our human ancestors do. We are born on it and die on it. We come from it and return to it. The land and the waters, oceans and rivers are part of us, relatives and ancestors in a very real way. Inuk singer and activist Tanya Tagak reminds me 
that the ocean is mother too. Stones are also our relatives. Whatever I eat has taken up nutrients from the ground, including minerals. The land itself becomes part of me. Thunderstorms and rivers become part of me. The land and the waters have absorbed the blood and sweat of generations, watched babies become old men and women and return to them. We are part of each other. Civilizations rise and fall, the land and waters continue. They hold memory of us all. Standing before a presence that large and that old and making one-sided claims of ownership is an act of extraordinary hubris. Steinbeck squatting men are calling on the land itself to witness their plight. They aren't only arguing with the men who represent the owners, they're appealing to the land itself to bear witness to their presence, to their right of ownership, and the land is silent. It does not put up any resistance or offer any comfort. Throughout the Grapes of Wrath, the land bears silent witness to the destruction of people and food, and it makes no response. Tractors plow the land, and it offers up only dust. This is, of course, the time of the Dust Bowl, a drought worsened by settlers who tore out the deep-rooted prairie grasses and planted the land with thirsty, shallow-rooted crops like wheat and cotton. In the same way, they tore out the deep-rooted native peoples and replaced us with newcomers. During the drought of the 1930s, from Texas to Nebraska and up across the Canadian prairie, high winds blew choking dust across the region, killing people and livestock, covering fields that refused to produce even weeds and thorns. The land fasted and covered herself in dust. Our emotions have a physical response. We feel sadness and our body responds by crying. In the ancient Middle East, drought was often connected with mourning as the land's physical response to an emotional state. Just as a Hebrew mourner would fast and pour dust over their head and body, so too the land expresses her grief by fasting and covering herself in dust. When I look at the chaotic weather patterns, at prolonged droughts, at rain that falls out of sync with the needs of the people and plants without providing abundance, I know that human industry has had a hand in it. These are the result of things we have done, harms we have caused and not cared about. Yet I cannot help but think that the land and the sea, the waters above and below are responding as well. I wonder if in response to our choices, the land itself is withdrawing in grief. I'm Patty. I'm the daughter of Roy, who is the son of Joe and Lula, who are Ojibwe Anishinaabe from Lasso, Ontario, also called Abishkokang First Nation, the place of the white pine arrows. When I say that they are from Lasso, Ontario, I am referring to the reserve where Joe was registered as an Indian. They are only from that small place because that's where the Indian agent put my ancestors during the 19th century when Canada was creating reserves. In Canada, we have reserves in the US, you have reservations. Before that, our family would have traveled, understanding themselves to be from a much larger geography. My father is fond of saying that we are descended from Noah and Moses. And indeed, Moses begat Noah, and Noah begat Joe, who married Lula. Lula's mother is Sophie, who apparently saved the life of an Irishman, um, Isaiah, who worked for the Hudson's Bay Company, trading goods for furs. Sophie is from Cat Lake, Ontario, and Isaiah's parents, Francis and Sarah, were born in Ireland. It is through my father, Roy, that my roots sink deeply into this place that is called Canada or North America or Turtle Island or any number of things. 
twisting through Anishinaabe and possibly Cree ancestors back to the beginning. It is through Roy that my roots entwine with those of the Hudson's Bay Company who employed Isaiah, along with so many other Scots and Irish who found their way into Anishinaabe and Cree lineage. We are Ojibwe Anishinaabe, caribou clan, who along with other subgroups of the larger Hoof clan, have social responsibilities to the broader community. I am the daughter of Vicki, who is the daughter of Anne and George. Anne is the daughter of Jacob and Margareta, the granddaughter of Dietrich and Anna, Heinrich and Katharina, the great-granddaughter of Benjamin and Helena, of Heinrich and, of Heinrich and Maria. My grandmother's family tree is known back to 1772. Germans moved by Catherine the Great into Russia to displace Ukrainians who created colonies along the Dnieper River that remained self-contained and well-documented for 200 years. In Germany, the Schultzes brewed beer, and in Ukraine, they farmed and they manufactured farm implements. If you're in the Ukraine, you can still see Schultz farm implements being used. Nothing is known of George's parents except that they were probably Ukrainian farmers. And the man that we know as George was actually my grandmother's second husband, who, like many refugees before and since, found safety in another person's name. We actually never learned his name until a few months before his death. It is through my mother, Vicki, that my roots travel through farmland to reach across oceans, searching for a home that is both here and there, it is through Vicky that my roots become interwoven with those of migrants and refugees, rooting us here in shallow but sturdy knots of connection. I am also the daughter of Jack, my mother's second husband who adopted me. It is through Jack that my roots run parallel with adoptees, native children who were scooped by child welfare and placed with white families. For although I was raised by my mother and her second husband, adopted by him and always loved, in other ways, I shared the disconnection of other indigenous children raised by white adoptive parents. So that's me. People often want to know how the book came about. How, how, did, how did this happen? Because I didn't set out to write a book. I didn't follow the conventional path of, you know, shopping, you know, coming up with an idea, writing a proposal, and shopping it around. What happened was I got mad. Um, I was at church, and the pastor got up to talk about, you know, the sermon was about identity politics. And I'm going to say right now, if a white man is going to talk about identity politics, he needs to not. <laughs> just, just don't. Uh, it's a difficult topic to get right, unless you're quoting the Combahee River Collective, <laughs> which he did not. <laughs> Um, so it's best just to leave that alone. But he was talking about how identity politics is out of control. And, you know, and he started off by talking about how Billie Jean King, um, at that time, she had come out against trans athletes. And I believe she has walked that back since then. I'm not sure, but at the time, I mean, social media was kind of letting her have it really hard for that. And his remarks were that if a gay rights icon like Billie Jean King can you know, be taken down by the mob by identity politics, then identity politics is out of control. Am I right? And everybody laughed. And then it kind of went downhill from there about how we're all the same in Jesus. And I just sat there getting angrier and angrier. And I always thought vibrating with rage was a figure of speech. But by the end of that 15-minute sermon, I was vibrating. And my husband saw me, he's like, just go home, go home, go home. Don't talk to anybody. Don't talk to anybody. Just go home. <laughs> so I did. I was, it was very solid advice. 
um, so I went home and I shit posted on Twitter and Facebook all day, up, you know, all afternoon, making sure, you know, on Facebook, because that's where the church people that I know would see it, about how trans athletes are real athletes and competing in their gender, and what about trans men, what kind of advantage do they have, you know, blah, 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 all of that stuff. And oddly, that accomplished nothing. Um, <laughs> so strange. <laughs> I didn't feel any better, you know, nobody had any big epiphanies, nobody, it was just, yeah, that accomplished absolutely nothing. So, um, so I wrote an article about identity because the trans story is not my story, although that was what made me angry. Um, just the way he was framing aggression, uh, identity, and how we're all the same in Jesus. And, and I, mean, I hear that really across movements, right? You know, we're all Marxists here, we're all whatever here. Well, no, I am indigenous, I'm always indigenous. And when people say we're all the same, whatever, we're all one human race, those things, that kind of language erases. Difference doesn't have to be division. We can acknowledge difference. So I wrote a piece from that point of view about how identity, about who, how, who I am and who we are collectively doesn't need to erase who we are individually. That all of those things can bring us together in really important ways. And so Journer's Magazine published it. And then, um, and then an editor from Broadleaf messaged me on Twitter and said, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I was like, first I messaged it to some friends of mine. I was like, is this real? Is this like a scam? Am I going to be out like $5,000 and have a box of books nobody wants? Like, what is this? <laughs> and they both say, no, no, it's legit. It's legit. You need to jump on it. So I messaged her back and said, well, I am now. What do we do? <laughs> and, you know, two years later, here we are. And I have to say that Valerie has been, I, I give her credit all the time, she has been a real dream to work with. We had a lot of conversations about a white woman editing um, an indigenous woman's writing. And at one point I had written, um, I had been describing um, you know, the, the trails of tears, the, you know, the, um, the illnesses, you know, the reservations, all of these things. And I, and I said, you know, so after this period of upheaval and disruption, and she highlights it and she comments, doesn't really do justice to what you've just described. And so I was like, okay, so after this period of genocide and ethnic cleansing, <laughs> and that's what you'll see in the book, you'll see that kind of language. And I always have to give her credit for that because in her role as editor, right, so she's got some authority as an editor, or she's got some authority over my writing, she gave me permission to expand what I was saying to stop policing myself, to stop being careful about what I was saying and saying, no, what you've just described is really terrible and you need to call it what it is. And, and so I did, and she made me a much stronger writer. And I have to say my experiences with both Midnight Sun and Rampant Magazine, who I have also published a, a few articles for, have been very positive in that regard. They've made me a, a much better writer. So who is this book for? This book is for the Christians that I grew up with, because I was raised in the evangelical church, and um, you know, and I grew up in the church, and I think Canada and the U.S. have also grown up in the church. Um, there's a lot of you know chatter, especially on Jewish Twitter, about Christian atheists, people who have kind of, you know, left.
Christianity behind, but still carry all of the same ideas about how you know we're supposed to you know have, kind of have a single belief, and their ideas about religion are basically ideas about what is terrible about evangelical Christianity, and but then they apply that broadly to all religion, and you know so I so I write it not just to Christians, but with the understanding that as countries that have grown up in the church that a lot of those thinkings, you know, a lot of those thoughts remain very much a part of our policies and our practices. It's not just the recent rise of Christian nationalism, unless you haven't been, you know, people clearly have not been paying attention if they think that this is new, right? This is our history. This is who we have, this is who Canada and the U.S. have always been. It looks like there was like a brief hiatus or maybe they were nicer about it. Um, but they're going, they're going back to their roots. This isn't the rise of Christian nationalism. Isn't, isn't that new? So it's for Christians and people who are maybe adjacent to it. It's for displaced and diasporic people, for my mother's family, for black people, for migrants, for people who came here maybe by choice, maybe by not choice. People who were forced here by enslavement, by climate crises, by wars and instability. So it's for those people too, my mother's family, and it's for indigenous people. Not because I think that as an Ojibwe woman who was raised in a white family, I have anything to teach my indigenous relatives, but because there's a word in it, and it's escaping my brain right now, that those of us who are um, you know, white and indigenous, you know, we kind of stand between worlds and we can act as interpreters. And, you know, so for me, as indigenous, you know, for the indigenous community, it's about giving them language to talk about the things that they already know and to help them frame conversations with the people that they're in contact with. So that's who it's for. I was really taken by Ruth Wilson, I think we're all really taken through me. But her definition of racism, I just, I came across it so recently. Um, I feel like in so many ways I'm so late to the party because I really just discovered her and I don't know how that happened. Um, she says, racism is the state-sanctioned and or legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerabilities to premature death in distinct yet densely interconnected political geographies. And as she said the other night, premature death is death at any age that takes place because of preventable causes. And when you look at the history of colonization in Canada and the US, and you look at the history of enslavement, followed by Jim Crow, followed by contemporary policies, you look at what happened with indigenous people, you see very clearly the state-sanctioned legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerabilities to premature death. Because when you look at our death rates, what do you see? When you tease it out by race, who's dying and why? Aurora Levins Morales has said that history is the story we tell about the past to explain the present. And just to return to Ruth Wilson Gilmore again, she asks who teaches, what is taught, and to what end? And so the first thing that I do in this book is I go through the his as I go through history, I go right back to creation. <laughs> so right back to the beginning. How do we understand creation stories? How do we understand how we got here? Whose creation story is seen as history and whose creation story is seen as myth or legend? And how do we, you know, to talk about Christian atheists, dismiss all creation stories as myths and legends? Because I don't know. 
I know my creation story is true in that kind of way that we have invented the idea of truth, but I know that we emerged here as people. I know that the Anishinaabe emerged in Northwestern Ontario. I know that that's where we became a people. I know that we migrated to the East Coast, and I know that we migrated back home again. I know that we are like corn or maize that you know went through layers of hybridization and traveled around and you started as teosinte and became something edible. But I also know that we are Minoan. We are wild rice who was planted and exists just as you know. Minoan wild rice didn't emerge out of hybridization. It ex it exists the way it has existed since it emerged from the ground. So I know that we are both of these things. So I go through the book and I'm looking at history and how can we understand every step of the way? How can we understand these relationships that formed? How can we understand them differently? What if the settlers had taken this lesson from the Bible instead of that? What if they had seen them in the text in this way instead of that way? Because Christians are very good at seeing themselves as poor beleaguered Israel, not so good at seeing themselves as Babylon or Rome. And then I talk about the bordering machines that create us, create, have created all of us. Harsha Walia has talked about state borders and nationalisms, how the violence of those borders that have crossed us the Anishinaabe people, of course, we go from, you know, kind of the Ottawa Valley across, well, really all around the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway on both sides. So that medicine line, and I understand now that the medicine line was called that because when people from the south crossed north into Canada, the U.S. military couldn't follow them. So crossing that boat, crossing that border with medicine and protected them. Um, not anymore. Um, Patriot Act, I think it is, means that they can now cross 100 miles into our border in search of whoever it is they want. So that's terrific. So yeah, so state borders and nationalisms. I talk about land ownership and what that means because, of course, everybody says things like you know that indigenous people didn't have any concept of land a land ownership and and that that's just nonsense um we understood what it was to be in relationship with land what it was to have communities in a particular place what it was to have familiar places to return to even if we were hunters and gatherers which is often used in a very diminishing kind of way as if that's like a lower stage of evolution um farming is just a reaction to population density I don't know if you guys have heard of Chris Bagley's book, um, Surviving the Next Apocalypse. Amazing book, you should get it. Um, but he talks about that. Really, there's nothing, it, it's just a reaction to population. There comes a point where foraging is no longer sustainable for a population. And so you have to be more intentional about farming crops. Like, I've had, I had friends in high school, um, I grew up in the fall, so a lot of my friends were Italian. And those people could plant a garden in their backyards like nobody's business. I have seen farms that couldn't get as much out of these little backyards in their homes. <laughs> you know, so garden farming can be a very intensive way of doing it. And but if you're hunting and gathering, you're still shaping your environment. You're still tending things that you're going to come back to. Right? You're still, you know, uh, Paulette Steves, uh, she's a Cree Métis archaeologist. Um, her book, um, The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, I refer to a couple of times in the book. You know, she talks about pyroepistemology, 
of the Cree and Anishinaabe people, you know, you know, in part because of burning things, you know, to you know, for for agriculture, but also as a philosophy of burning things. We have, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard of like the, you know, prophecy of the eight fires, and each fire is, and we always often think of them as um, like little campfires where we kind of sit around and tell stories, and that's very nice, and it is very nice. Um, one of my favorite things about camping is, you know, fires. But it's also wildfires, wildfires that kind of burn out of control and create change. In the book, I actually talk about the fires as a cleansing, and I wouldn't use that language anymore um, because then you start thinking about who gets cleansed. Um, I would now talk about talk about it as transformation. It, trans it transforms the environment into something different. And the prophecy of the eighth fire which is where I'm kind of thinking when I read that passage about the land withdrawing and grief. The prophecy of the eighth fire rests on settlers. The outcome rests on settlers, rests on the new people, rests on, uh, on the light-skinned race that came from across the sea. It's your choices, your choices that will decide what happens. Whether we get a pathway that is lush and green, my son uh, has burned grasses in our backyard. Uh, we have uh, you know, a long skinny property and he's burned grasses. And the wild strawberries come up, you know, because now the tall grasses are out of the way and the wild strawberries can come up. And, and it goes from this kind of brownish gray yard to this beautiful green yard with these teeny tiny little strawberries that take forever to pick. Uh, but the deer really like them. Uh, so I leave it to the deer and the birds. You know, so it's, you know, the wildfire can create, you know, this beautiful transformed landscape. But he also did forest firefighting. And he has told me about what happens when a forest fire goes through a clear cut and the moonscape that results from that. Nothing grows. Usually after a forest fire, there are some trees and shrubs that need the fire in order to germinate, the pine cones that need that intense heat in order to germinate. But when it goes through a clear cut, there's nothing to germinate, there's just fuel and it burns intensely hot and sometimes it burns underground. Part of his job was actually to stick his hand in the ground and see if it was hot. <laughs> um, you know, so that's gonna be the result of these choices. The fire is coming. The change is coming, I think we all feel that. But what's that gonna look like? And according to our prophecy, that's up to you. And so in part, that's a lot of what I'm thinking about as I'm writing this book, because you guys have choices to make. These systems, these bordering regimes, these state borders, these systems of land ownership, the residential and boarding schools, which were bordering regimes, intended to what, civilize and educate, but not really. Policing. Policing is an internal bordering regime that Mariam Kaba has talked a lot about. Child welfare is a bordering regime. Dorothy Roberts has written a terrific book about it. Uh, I did child welfare um, for 16 years. I also talk about that in the book. Um, I read her book, although I practiced in Canada for 16 years, it tracks and the things that she talks about being in the U.S., very much part of my Canadian experience as well. Um, my last couple of years, I always tell this story and I warned Harsha that I was going to tell it again today. Um, my son met her in Halifax. Uh, he was actually the one who told me that I needed to read Harsha Walia and then I liked her so much that I kind of hunted her down on Twitter and I don't know, pals. 
Uh, so look out. If I like you, I will find you. <laughs> um, so anyway, so she had, he had been taught. At that point, I had by that time, I was already struggling with what I was doing. I had started as a true believer. I thought we were there to keep kids safe. Over time, I realized, um, even before I really understood the nature of colonialism, I saw that what we were doing wasn't helpful. That as often as we were making things better, we were making things worse. I saw whose families we were staying involved with and whose families we agreed to leave alone. I started noticing these things on my own, and I was struggling with them, and I thought I could stay and make change. We often think that, right? That we can make change from the inside. Well, systems hate change. And if you're trying to change it from the inside, the system has HR on its side. So, yeah, it's really hard. And, and they will only give you things that don't cost it anything. So when we try to do change from the inside and we get wins, those are only wins that don't cost the system anything. And they actually help to perpetuate it and perpetuate the greater harms. So he, he talked to her about it and she, you know, and he said, well, like, what can she do? What can she do? What advice do you have from my mom? And although she framed it much nicer and much more, I don't know if you've read her stuff, but kind of much more you know, generous, what I heard was, you're going to have to leave. You can't stay. Um, that there was just going to come a point. And, there, and there, was, there did come a point where I realized I just couldn't be part of it anymore. And uh, yeah, so child welfare is a bordering regime. Indian status is a bordering regime, a way of controlling our identity. I, if you heard um, Fami Taiwo talk about the lead capture, he talked about the Combahee River Collective versus uh, the Nixon administration, not like that they were in conflict, but just that both groups were talking about what it meant to be black in America. You know, so on the one hand, you've got these you know, queer black women, and on the other hand, you've got these white politicians. And they're both talking about what it means to be black in America, but they're talking about it in very different ways. But who's got the funding? Who's got the big podiums? Who's got the media access? Who's got all of those things? So whose idea of what it means to be black in America becomes the dominant story? It's not the Comedy River Collective. Thing. And the same thing happens with indigenous identity. You know, there's the grassroots, there's the people that, you know, we live in communities with each other, you know, we, you know, we, we our families, we talk about kinship, but then there's also the government system of deciding who we are. And in Canada and the U.S., it's a little bit different. In the U.S., the tribes have decide their own citizenship. Um, but the state recognizes, either the federal state or, or the state level, they decide which tribes to recognize. And they can decide that you're not Indians anymore. They can disenroll like entire tribes. And that happened to the Menomi. Um, but they said that the Menomi were now ready to enter like real society. And they lost all their land. And the Menomi successfully argued that they were in fact Indians and you know got some back, but it caused a lot of harm. In Canada, we have much smaller communities. They're reserves. They're not like larger land, you know, like the, the reservations are. Um, but so in Canada, the government decides who's an Indian. So we call it's the two generation rule. So two parents are Indian. The child has an Indian status. Then that child marries a white, a non-native person. Could be native, but just doesn't have legal Indian status. That child can have status. So my kids have, have status. My grandson, who is being raised in the language, 
because his mother speaks to him in Nishnabe Moen all the time, is raised in the culture, is very connected with, with uh, Hiawatha First Nation, um, which is near Peterborough where they live, is very connected with land, very connected with community, connected with the spiritual aspects of it. He will not have Indian status because his mother, on her side of the family, one of her relatives was, it's called disenfranchised. So they may have gotten a university degree. Maybe they went to war, they joined the military. Um, it could be as simple as the band manager was mad at them. My dad lost his Indian status when he was two because his mother refused to go back to her husband and went with another man who didn't have Indian status but was native. And the band manager said, well, if you don't go back to Joe Wesley, if you stay with Joe Lyons, then I'm gonna say that your little boy's a Lyons and he won't have status anymore, and just like that. Roy wasn't an Indian. He actually had to do a DNA test to prove that he had the same father as his brothers in order to get his status reinstated. So Indian status is a bordering regime. Churches are bordering regimes. Deciding on who belongs and who doesn't, churches have done a lot of damage to Native communities, still do a lot of damage to Native communities, particularly in the North, where that really hardcore evangelical homophobia is really difficult on our two-spirit queer youth. Because we didn't understand gender in this binary that Europe brought over. That I don't even think Europe had that binary until the church needed it to, until families needed to be constructed in a very particular way. Because, of course, there's a long history of queer and transgendered people in Europe, in Africa, throughout North America, throughout all of these places until capitalism needed a very particular kind of family. And that particular kind of family required particular kinds of gender, required particular kinds of production, and everyone who wasn't producing along that line was expendable. And of course that's what child welfare is, right? It's removing children from these expendable families and putting them with good empire turning them into good empire citizens. Because when you look at who's being moved and where they're being moved to, healthcare is a bordering regime. Yesterday at the health communism panel, um, one of the speakers said that health is used to disqualify people from social and civic life. And I thought that was really interesting because when you look at whose healthcare is accessible and whose isn't, when you look at the healthcare on reserves, there's a book um, about indigenous women's about indigenous women's healthcare, and it talks about the rate of sterilization still among Native women because certain medical procedures are covered under the IHS and certain are not. And so, although these sterilizations may not be coerced in the way that they have been and sometimes still are, accessibility is a form of coercion. If you can only get one thing, you don't really have much of a choice. Nobody's forcing you to get that one thing, but what kind of choice is it when that's your only option? So healthcare is also a form of uh, a bordering regime. And I just want to talk a minute about, there was a tweet that Zoe Tsumuda um, put out yesterday thinking about a visit to her cardiologist. The intake nurse had asked her about her recreational drug use and then said that she doesn't really note it because she doesn't want patients, you know, she doesn't want that in the patient's record. It was more like as she was taking tests, she wanted to know how to interpret the test. And so I returned in this tweet 
um, to, uh, with Wilson Gilmore's definition of racism. And I commented about a young indigenous woman who had died in the ER last December. She had been sent home the previous day after complaining of back pain. She returned to the hospital the next day and died in the ER of what was a strep A infection, which is immensely treatable. So that is premature death. And I noted that although people were rightly calling the incident racist, most of the focus had been on the triage nurses, who may or may not have known that this young woman was native. It may not have been noted on her file that she was native. Her name is her, her last name is Winterstein. That's not typically a native name. So the nurses may not have known that she was native, but they did know that she had a history of drug use. And hospitals have policies about people with a history of drug use. Just like they have policies for people who have borderline personality disorder. If that's noted on your file, you will be sent away. You will be treated as if you are behaving irrationally, even though you may be completely rational in that moment. And so I noticed whose recreational drug use gets documented and whose doesn't. Who is most often the beneficiary of the kind of discretion that Zoe was fortunate to get? And how do these policies contribute to the legal exploitation and production of group differentiated vulnerabilities to premature death? And unless diversity and inclusion teams take this definition seriously, and look at policies, rather than treating racism as a personal failing, nothing will change. So the eighth fire is about your choices. And I just have a couple of minutes before we go to questions. So I want to talk. I do this in the book, too. The book is like mostly how messed up things got. And then there's this little tiny bit about what to do next. <laughs> so what do we do next? We reconfigure our, our relationship to land. And I want to think of land back as movement building, as a movement against borders, towards different centers, overlapping circles reaching outward in a steady gradient in the thickness of our lived relationships. Kinship is expansive in a way that citizenship is not. The Zapatistas talk about many worlds. And a favorite piece that I wrote got published by Midnight Sun is called The Land With Whom. And you know, I don't know, like whoever of you in the room that are writers, sometimes you write something and you're like, damn, that's really good. That's how I felt about that piece. So go to Midnight Sun Mag and find it. It's called The Land With Whom. So we need to reconfigure our relationship with land. And we need to see land back as a movement against borders. We need to think about our relationship to each other. Who claims you? Alexis. Uh, Alexis Shotwell um, had writes about claiming unwanted kin. She's a white woman, and she writes about, well, who claims me as a white woman? Because Native people always say, who claims you? Right? Who claims you? Uh, and so Alexis Shotwell talks about, well, who claims me as a white woman? Well, white nationalists claim me. They claim to be building a world that I'm going to be safe in. I might not like it. They may not like me, but I'm going to be safe in that world. So what is my responsibility? This is you know, what Alexis is saying. What is my responsibility then to these relatives I don't want to claim, to these unwanted kin? And that's you know, so that's something that we need to think about. What is my responsibility to the church? Which, although I haven't gone for months, and I think I need to take that out of my bio, <laughs> um, they still claim me. Those are the relationships. They, they still see me as part of that community. 
not just the small local church, but the broader church community? What about my relationship to social work? Even though I no longer practice as a social worker, I have friends who are in that field. I'm very familiar with that field. I'm very familiar with that history. I'm very familiar with how it operates in our society. I'm on the board of the Friendship Center. I'm very familiar with how social workers and policing operate in our community. So what is my responsibility to those people who may claim me? My responsibility to migrants and refugees through my mother's family who will claim you, who claim me. What is my responsibility to them? What is my responsibility to my indigenous community who also claims me? And those are all connected, right? We don't live in like these isolated pockets. Those things always overlap. So when we think about our relationships to each other, we need to think about who claims us and what is our responsibility to those people. And then we need to think about relationships of solidarity. And honestly, by the time I got to that chapter in the book about solidarity, the outline said I had to write about solidarity, and I did not know if I wanted to be in solidarity with <laughs> Canadians and Americans. So I started with the story of the deer, the deer who abandoned the Anishinaabe, because we had been behaving very badly. We were not treating them respectfully, we were being wasteful and terrible, and although they had promised the creator at the time of our creation to take care of us, if we ate and killed them all, they wouldn't be here anyway. So the deer peaced out and left us alone. And we went looking for them. Where'd you go? And they were just gone. And we went through the whole winter. We were hungry. And there were other animals that may also have stepped back because now we're over-relying on them. And so that was a long, hungry winter. But what did we do in winter? What did we do during the pandemic? We watched Netflix. We told stories. We read books. So that's what the, and that's what the Anishinaabe do in the winter. That's what we all do, right? We read, so we told stories. But with those hungry bellies, those stories probably sounded a little bit different. Stories about nana bushes, greed, and selfishness weren't that funny anymore, because now we're hungry. And so after the winter, we laid down our tobacco, and we went looking for the deer. And we sent out runners. And, you know, the first one comes back, second one, third one. And because this is a story, of course, it's the last runner who comes home and finds, they found one little deer. And she told them that the deer had left and told them why. And so the Anishinaabe listened. And they got together with the deer. And they listened. And they listened. And they made new agreements. And that's where I began my chapter on solidarity. Because it's okay for us to separate and to do our own work. And then when we're ready, when we've listened, send out runners. Don't wait for us to come to you. You come to us. You come to our Indian centers. You come to our powwows. You come to our actions. You come to where we are. The Anishinaabe in this story did not sit and wait for the deer to be finished being mad. I don't know what the deer did. They were off doing deer things, singing deer songs, doing like deer stuff. And so we are off, we are doing our stuff. As Leanne Simpson says, we don't need white people to save us. We save us. But we need to be in a relationship with each other. You guys have choices to make. You guys have policies that need to be changed, systems that need to be rebuilt. You've got that whole policing mess that you need to take care of. 
because we're not the only ones it's killing. And then we can come together as equals. We can come together as partners. And we can build that new world. We can walk that path that is lush and green and build something beautiful together. We do not need a kinder, more just and inclusive settler colonialism. To paraphrase Naomi Klein, it is not enough to say that we live on indigenous land. We need to organize like we do. We need to change everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.